Good morning. If uh, you don't know me, if you're a guest, uh, my name is Adam and it's really great to have you with us today as we land the sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks that we titled What the World Needs Now, The Power and the Beauty of the Church. For the last few weeks we've been asking the question, well what truths, what realities need to define the church that is going to make a difference in our day? And if you can think back to week one, the answer to that question was a church that is defined by clear gospel doctrine, a clear belief in the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. Week two, we saw that the answer was compelling gospel culture, a church that lives out that message of grace for the undeserving. It's the shared experience of grace. Last week we saw that it is a church that is also defined by Christ-like service. We serve one another, we serve our world like Jesus has served us. And today we'll be looking at the final reality, the final truth. We're going to see that we need to be defined by courageous witness. We're going to see our need for courage. Now one of the best things I've heard on courage comes from Franklin Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States of America. He's quoted as saying, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Let me say that again. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Now this helps us because I think we often think about courage as a lack of fear. In other words, when we're courageous, it means we're not afraid in the face of danger. But that's just not true. We all feel fear at different times in our life. But courage means that we're not crippled by our fear. Rather, we're able to step out in spite of our fear because we're motivated, we're moved by something greater. Now I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about courage. Maybe you think of something like this. Now that kid's certainly trying to show that bull who's boss. The bull doesn't look too impressed, but that's alright. Maybe you think of something like this. Now this is for all you cat lovers that I've offended over the years. See, look. I'm not sure what happened after that photo was taken, but let's just hope and assume that the cat lived. When I think of courage, this is one of the first images that comes into my mind. This is a picture of John Simpson on his or John Simpson and his donkey on the Gallipoli Peninsula during World War One. You see, Simpson would use his donkey to carry wounded men from the battlefield down to the beach. And history tells us that John Simpson worked night and day under fierce fire, shrapnel fire, rifle fire, and he worked with very little regard for himself or his own safety, but rather the the well-being of the men that he carried. And John Simpson on the Gallipoli Peninsula very quickly developed a reputation for bravery. In fact, the name John Simpson became a bit of a byword for courage on the peninsula. The Indian troops actually called him Bahadur, which means bravest of the brave. Sadly, Simpson was shot and killed at Gallipoli, but his example of courage lives on. 
You see, John Simpson pushed through the fear that he must have felt at losing his own life. And he pushed through that fear because of something greater, saving the lives of his mates and his fellow soldiers. Another example I think of is this lady, Irina Sendler. Now, when the Nazis invaded her native Poland and they began to they began to round up all the Jews and put them into a walled-up ghetto. Irina knew what was going to happen. And so she actually got her nurse's licence, which enabled her to go in and out of the ghetto. And as she did that, she would sneak in food and she would sneak in medicine, but it was what she snuck out that was even more remarkable. It's estimated that Irina and her group got 2,500 children out of the Warsaw Ghetto. They would sedate these children, place them in toolboxes or burlap sacks and they would smuggle them out and send them on to Christian orphanages where they were given new identities. Now, Irina was eventually captured and imprisoned and tortured by the Nazis. She had both of her legs broken. But she survived the war and after the war she continued to work to reconnect these children to their families. See, Irina must have felt incredible fear But in the face of that fear, she did not let it cripple her. But she stepped out in action because of something greater. To save the lives of those children. And this is courage. It's not the absence of fear. It's the ability to step out in spite of fear because of something greater. And this is not only true in the big dramatic moments of life. This is also true in our ordinary everyday lives. In fact, for most of us, we're going to need courage in the ordinary, everyday moments of our lives. I mean, I know for some of us, it takes courage to act with integrity in our workplaces. I know for some of us, it takes courage to stand up to the the bully at school. I know for some of us who are wrestling with illness, whether that's physical or mental, it takes courage just to get out of bed in the morning. We all need courage in our everyday lives. And the truth is, we also need courage in our relationship with Jesus. If we are going to follow Jesus in this world, genuinely follow Jesus in this world, we will need courage. See, the Bible is clear that we will face trouble in this life. And not just trouble because we live in a world that's been broken by sin, illness and and relationship breakdown and the like. We will face trouble as a direct result of following Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples and to us in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, as a result of, as a consequence of, because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. Not you might have, not you could have, but you will have trouble. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 the apostle Paul says indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
There's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. The reality is that as we follow Jesus and as we witness to him, we will experience opposition and rejection. In fact, the Bible tells us that as we follow Jesus and as we witness to him in the world, there will be two very different opposite reactions and responses to the message that we have, that God has given us to share with the world. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes his life and ministry. See, Paul was one of the greatest missionaries of the Christian faith. He would travel around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he says that his life and his message, it produced two opposite reactions. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Listen to what he says. He says, To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. You see, Paul describes the gospel and those who carry it out into the world as an aroma, as a fragrance. And Paul says that this aroma, it smells differently to different people. To those who are being saved, Paul says, the message of Jesus smells sweet and life-giving. When these people encounter the church of Jesus and hear the message of Jesus, they receive it with joy. They receive it with faith and they enter in. They receive life from God. But to those who are perishing, Paul says, the message of Jesus smells offensive and repulsive. When these people encounter the church of Jesus and the message of Jesus, they turn up their noses and they turn their backs. They wonder why we're so out of step, we're so out of date. They wonder why we believe what we believe and they reject life from God. Two opposite reactions to the one message. And here's what this means for us. What the Bible is telling us today is if you are a Christian... You should expect trouble in this world. You should expect that you will not always be liked or embraced. You should expect that what we believe is not always going to be popular or palatable. You should expect that the life-giving good news of the gospel is going to be rejected by a world that can only smell it as death. To put it another way, you should not expect that you're going to be one of the cool kids. You might have been a cool kid at school. I hate to break it to you, on the playground of this world, you're not going to be in the popular group. You're going to be an outsider, an oddity, even an enemy. And this is what the Bible very clearly tells us to expect, and this is what history shows us to be true. You know, the people of God... For most of human history, they have rarely, if ever, occupied a position of popularity and power. Think about the cultural environment in which the Christian church came into being. The church was birthed in the midst of the Roman Empire and it immediately came under violent threat. The Roman Empire attempted to snuff out, to stamp out the Christian church. Christians in that day were fed to lions, put in prison, crucified and boiled alive. They were violently persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And this has always been the story of the Christian church in some part of the world. And it still is to this day. 
in places like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia, Christians are violently persecuted for their faith. In North Korea, anyone with links to Christianity is tortured, arrested and even killed. In Afghanistan, those who convert to Christianity are considered to be insane for leaving Islam. And unless they recant, they end up either in a psychiatric hospital, beaten or with their homes destroyed. Those who follow Jesus openly in Afghanistan are killed. In Somalia, Islam is the state religion and to convert to Christianity means almost certain death. In fact, last year in 2017, 23 people suspected of converting to Christianity were killed by extremists. And in a country of 11 plus million people, it's estimated that there is only around 100 Christians. Now I share all of this because the persecution that the Bible talks about and that Jesus warned us about, it is a devastating reality for many Christians in other parts of the world. And we need proper perspective as we think about persecution. And especially the persecution or the prejudice that we might experience for following Jesus in our culture. You see, the reality is that in our culture, we can follow Jesus openly without the threat of violence or death. We might face ridicule or social ostracism. We might be considered weird or dumb or simple or deluded or any kind of adjective you can think of. We might face prejudice when it comes to employment or career opportunities. We might have our vision of truth and morality dismissed and denied as outdated and primitive. We might have any of those things happen to us. But at the moment, we will not be dragged to jail or killed for our faith in Jesus. We won't. And this means we need to be careful when we throw around the label of persecution. We need to have the proper perspective about what that really means in other parts of the world. But I also recognise that for us, times are changing. The social and religious climate of our culture is changing. It's taking on a a sharper edge. And Christian truth, which has played such a foundational role in shaping our society, is being sidelined, marginalised. And I know that this can be very disorienting for many of us. I know that it's difficult for those who have been Christians for a while to go from this place of kind of general favour and acceptance and embrace to a place of foolishness and scorn and rejection in such a short space of time. I understand that. The reality is that things are changing quickly for us. And so I just want to say two things in light of the changing reality of the culture in which we live. The first is that this cultural upheaval is not an entirely bad thing. See, when the church, listen to me carefully, when the church occupies a position of cultural acceptance and political power, the church can grow weak and stale and bloated and soft. You can call yourself a Christian and have really no love for Jesus, no desire to follow Jesus. You can be a cultural Christian. But when there is pressure on the church and pressure on Christians, it burns away that veneer of fake religion. It reveals what's really going on underneath the surface. And this is a good thing, because it means we can get honest before God and honest with ourselves. And the church 
has often thrived on the margins. I could think about China. 50 years ago, very few Christians. Today it's on track to become one of the most, one of the nations with the most Christians in the world. But secondly, this cultural upheaval does not mean that we retreat from public life. See, Christians can and should contribute to the conversation about how our society is shaped and run. Let me give you an example. Did you know that at the moment there is a federal government review into religious freedom in Australia? The review panel has been asked to examine whether Australian law adequately protects the human right to religious freedom. Now, if you're a Christian, you can and should contribute to that. The panel is asking for submissions. I made a submission this week. Christians can and should contribute to the conversation about how our society is shaped and run. But we should also understand that part of what it means to be a Christian is to expect trouble in this world. To expect not to be liked or embraced. And to expect to have our vision of truth and morality dismissed and denied. And this is why we've been in this series in the last few weeks. Because we've been asking the question, well, what kind of church is going to make a difference in our day? What needs to define the church that will make a difference in our day? And today, we're suggesting that we need to be defined by courageous witness. I'm not talking about getting angry. I'm not talking about getting indignant, about getting self-righteous and and coming across as morally superior. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about humble courage to be faithful witnesses to Jesus. So how can we do that? That's the question I think we have to wrestle with, is how can we fill our hearts with courage? What do we need to know in order to follow Jesus with courage into this world? Of course, there's lots of good things that we can do and know. I mean, we need to know our Bibles so we can share its message coherently. We need to have good answers to questions that people wrestle with and struggle with. We need to be able to pray with and for others. They're all good things. But over and above those things, the one thing that we need to fill our hearts with courage as we go out into this world is to know who our God is. Courage comes not in ourselves, but from knowing our God. Courage will fill our hearts when we fill our minds with the truth of who our God is and when we remind ourselves that our God is with us. And to do this, to help us remember and remind ourselves of who our God is, I just want to briefly take us to Romans chapter 11. You see, Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Rome was at the heart of the Roman Empire. And Paul wrote this letter in, a, in the day when Christians were being violently persecuted, burned alive, tortured, imprisoned and killed for their faith. And it's fascinating to me that when Paul writes to this church to encourage them, he doesn't say to them, well, you need to fight back. You need to get some weapons and organise yourselves into garrisons and, and fight fire with fire. He doesn't say, you need to get angry, you need to get indignant. No. To build the courage of the church in Rome, Paul writes one of the most doctrinally rich letters in the New Testament. He paints a dazzling picture of who God is and what God has done for us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. He says, Oh, the depths 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Listen to what we're told about God in these verses. The first thing Paul points our attention to is the riches of God, the wealth of God. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would Paul point us to the riches of God? We see in that day, to be a Christian, it meant to have your home and your belongings plundered. It meant to have your stuff stolen from you. And Paul is reminding these believers about the wealth of God to say to them, it doesn't matter what they take from you. It doesn't matter if you end up broke and in prison. The wealth of God is immense and it is yours. Think about the wealth of God for a minute. Listen to what we read in Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, as the Lord speaks. And he says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Everything belongs to God. He spoke the world into existence and it belongs to Him. And what this means is if you belong to Him, then it's yours as well. It's part of your inheritance. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And so Paul is comforting these persecuted believers and he's reminding them that if you lose all of your earthly possessions and you still have God, then you still have everything. And it's true for us as well. And Paul then moves on to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now again, if you're marginalised and experiencing persecution, then this is incredibly important. Because if you find yourself in prison or being beaten up for your faith, then you can begin to think that God has lost control. You can begin to think that God doesn't know what he's doing. And this is why Paul highlights the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Again, think about the knowledge of God for a moment. The Bible tells us that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. In other words, God sees the entire picture beginning from end. We, on the other hand, see one pixel, one fragment, one frame. Augustine, the African theologian from the 4th century He explained it this way. He said that to be a human is kind of like having your face pressed up against a stained glass window. You can see a little bit of colour, you can see some of the fragments, but it doesn't really make sense. Only God is far back enough to see the whole picture. And this is why verse 33 in Romans 11 says that God's judgments, God's ways, they are unsearchable and inscrutable. They're beyond understanding and beyond questioning. We just don't know enough to even ask the right questions. One preacher I heard explain it this way. He said, to scrutinise God, to shake our fist at God, to say that God has lost control, it's kind of like walking into a three-hour movie for two seconds, then stepping out and lecturing the director on the storyline. Telling the director that he doesn't know what he's doing. We just don't see enough and we just don't know enough. But the Bible tells us that we can entrust ourselves to the one who does. 
And Paul's writing to these believers and he's saying, God has not forgotten. God has not abandoned you. God sees your tomorrow and he sees a thousand years and ten thousand years and forevermore. In fact, think about this. The persecuted believers that Paul is writing to in Rome, they were under the thumb of one of the most powerful empires in human history. They could never have imagined the Roman Empire coming to an end. And yet, today, people travel to Rome not to behold an empire, but to look at ruins. And the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well in every corner of the globe. God is working in the midst of things in a way that we can't even understand. And so when things don't seem to be going our way, we do not lose heart. We entrust ourselves to the one who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Then Paul finishes with these words. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? And the answer, no one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has put God in their debt? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, when we fill our minds with the truth of who our God is, our hearts will be filled with courage. And one man who understood this was Martin Luther King Jr. King, as many of you would know, was a preacher and a civil rights leader in the United States. In the 1950s, as the civil rights action really started to heat up, as people started to get seriously beaten and as serious threats were being made, King wrote a sermon called Our God is Able. And in it, he says, It seemed as though I heard an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. The outer situation remained the same. But God had given me inner calm. Listen to this. Three nights later, our home was bombed. Strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My experience with God had given me new strength and trust. I know now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face the storms of life. God will give us what we need to be courageous witnesses to Jesus in our day. God might not make the storms of life go away. The outer situation might remain exactly the same. But God will give us what we need because he is our God and he is with us. See, what the world needs now is a church that declares the message of the gospel, divine grace for the undeserving. A church that exhibits that good news in their shared life together. A church that serves one another like Jesus has served us. And a church that goes out into the world as courageous witnesses to Jesus. Because we know that on the cross, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. We know that three days later, he rose from the grave and defeated death. And we know that he is coming back 
He's bringing God's kingdom with him and he will reign and rule forevermore. See, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we simply lift our eyes up to you, who you are and what you've done for us, and we allow that to fill our hearts with courage, knowing that as we go from here, you go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity now to respond to the Word of God by coming to Lord's Supper. And as we prepare to do that, I'd like to read for us from the Book of Forms. And this is what we read. It says, Scripture says that when we partake in Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of the Lord until He comes. Who are we to proclaim the death of Christ? We whose sins are the cause of it. For our transgressions He was pierced and for our iniquities He was crushed. Only in utter humility can we properly celebrate the supper of our Lord, knowing that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The marvellous news of the gospel comes to those who humble themselves before God. When we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The only possible response to this good news is grateful repentance. Jesus, who died our death, invites us to live his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is for this new life in Christ Jesus that he strengthens us by this food and drink at his table. At his table, we do not only meet our Lord, we also meet one another there. As our Lord welcomes us, so we are to welcome our brothers and sisters, struggling saints as we are, and we are to do all we can to encourage them in love. The table of the Lord is for those who humbly trust in him and seek to follow him in repentance and obedience. Those, however, who live in self-righteousness, who place their hope in works or virtues of their own, and who do not show love to God and neighbour, have no place at the Lord's Supper unless they repent. Yet we should not be deterred by any sin and weakness which lingers within us against our will. The God of grace and mercy calls us to turn to him and live. So if you have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, then I invite you to come to the table. And let me invite those who will be uh, distributing the elements to come forward and to get into position. See, if your trust and your faith is in Jesus, then you come and you receive the elements which represent what Christ has done for us, the bread which represents his broken body and the cup that we drink which represents his spilt blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And then you take those elements and you go back to your seat and we will eat and drink together as the redeemed people of God, nourishing ourselves on what Christ has done for us. And so if you are in the outer sections and you just come out the, the outside rows and then back through that aisle to your seat. If you're in the middle, then you just come down through this middle aisle, out through those two aisles and then back to your seat. You'll be invited by the ashes. But if your faith is in Jesus, then you come, receive the elements and we'll eat and drink together. Come church, all things are ready.